for that. We need the hand of God to move powerfully and uh, really bring a deliverance to this generation. Because how we know this generation of teenagers needs deliverance. And so anyway, if you'll help us pray there, that'll be a great, great blessing. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Probiotics are most effective when they make it to your colon alive. That's why C developed a patented two-in-one capsule that safeguards viability of its DSO-1 daily symbiotic through digestion to deliver the maximum dose to your colon. No refrigeration necessary. Visit C.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. We're going to go to Ezekiel 36. If I was telling the guys right now that as I was flying into El Paso this afternoon and uh, we were on approach, it was a bit bumpy, and we were about 10 seconds from the runway when all of a sudden uh, the plane, you hear the engines thrust, and next thing you know, we're engines are screaming and we're headed uh, like this straight up. And so, um, you know, people that travel know something's up. People that are, uh, don't travel are clueless. They're just, and, and yet uh, I'm, I'm wondering, okay, what happened here? I thought it might have been winds or something like that. And then about 30 seconds later, the pilot comes on in his pilot voice. Well, folks, looks like there was another plane on the runway. So we're going to go around one more time and land. <laughs> Amen. So... I don't know if that was the devil not wanting me to preach tonight, but I'm here. Hallelujah. Thank God. Thank God for pilots that can keep their mud. All right. Ezekiel 36. Okay. You know, uh, I put this sermon together a year ago, and I did it in the height of the Me Too explosion. Remember the Me Too explosion? Everybody seems to have forgotten that, but women were coming out uh, and uh, talking about their sexual abuse, sexual harassment, uh, and they began to name names. And the prominent politicians and entertainers and media personalities were exposed. Al Franken, Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein. And, and, uh, and uh, let me just say that I'm sure a lot of that was legitimate. There are a lot of wolves out there and predators. Some of that, I think, was a bunch of of bitter women that want to tell themselves they were a victim rather than a whore. And, uh, and so I believe that uh, you probably have both components that are there. But I want to tell you, this was not accidental. There's a reason behind that because uh, uh, the, there's a subtle message, and that message is that men cannot be trusted in positions of power because of lust. That is really the, the underlying thing is that men, the problem with men is that men lust. That's the message that these women are sending. We hear another term that's kind of popular right now, and that's toxic masculinity. That men are toxic, and, and to be a man is to be threatened. We know that uh, you're not a man unless when you were in third grade they tried to put you on Ritalin. And, uh, that, and they, that we see this. We're always reminded that 
mass shootings are all done by men. I want to tell you that uh, the people that are promoting this narrative, whether it's the sexual fiend or the aggressive male, they have an agenda, and that agenda is the elevation of the mannish woman. And the idea that what we need are strong women, and they are the ultimate in leadership. If you don't believe me, I have a Nathaniel, I have a picture display. Why don't you help me? I'm going to show you some pictures here. Uh, hopefully none of these are your former girlfriends. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, this right here, I mean, you know, th th aren't you glad she never became president? How would you, listen, how would you like to go to work and have her as your manager right there? Go ahead, next one. There you go. That's our Supreme Court justice that plays softball. And uh, go to the next one, Janet Reno. She was our attorney general under Bill Clinton. <laughs> She's not a politician, but I just had to put her in there anyway. <laughs> Janet Napolitano. And so, you know, we say, what are you doing? What I'm saying to you is that there are many people who believe this is the kind of women we need. Mannish women, because they don't have those weaknesses of men, but they're strong. Every one of these people, save Rosie, was somebody who held high political office because the Me Too movement is basically saying, you can't get men to be leaders. Let's get the men out of here, and let's put in people like this. Okay, we may laugh, but it's not funny. This is an agenda. What's the answer? Well, like all things, the Bible is the answer. And there's a wonderful promise made in the book of Ezekiel about men that I want you to consider. You perhaps are familiar with this passage, but I remember when my personal reading, uh, this verse leapt out at me a few years ago, and I began to pray this verse. And I want you to consider it with me. I want to minister tonight a sermon called Men Like a Flock out of Ezekiel 36, verse 33. It says, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the wasted, desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. Listen to this. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock in Jerusalem on its feast day shows how the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 1, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out of the spirit, uh, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Father, help us. I pray for anointing. I thank you for every one of these men. God, make them a flock. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin. Let's talk about men in society tonight. So here's our passage this evening. 
Ezekiel 36 is one of the most hopeful chapters in the whole Bible. It is the promise of God's renewed blessing on the nation of Israel after the terrible judgment that had fallen upon them. Remember, Ezekiel is a prophet in exile. He is, as he ministers, calls out everything that had gone wrong that caused the sacking of Jerusalem and the captivity of people being taken into Babylon. And yet, as he is saying all of that, in this chapter, he's telling us something else. No matter how bad things are, it's not over, and I'm glad for that tonight. I don't, I don't know who you are tonight. I don't know everything that's going on in your life, but I want to know. Uh, I want you to know tonight, uh, it's not over for you. And this is who God is. And he says in verse 33, I cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. And the scripture actually says that he's going to make desolate places look like the Garden of Eden. That's powerful. Now, we know historically that Palestine was a wasteland, that Mark Twain went there and said, I know the Bible cannot be true because this is not the land that flows with milk and honey, but Mark Twain is dead and the nation of Israel is reborn. And guess what? It's the Garden of Eden. But that prophecy, church, is not just about that land. It's about people. It's about the promise of restoration. It's about what something that God was going to do. But in this promise, there's an important link. And I believe, beloved, it is the key to unlocking all of God's blessing and favor. Because in verse 37, he says, I will increase your men like a flock. And he begins to reiterate that. And what he's saying here is that as men go, so go a nation. That if the nation would be revived, it's going to be because its men were going to be revived. That you cannot have a strong nation unless you have strong men. If you remove men, then you remove blessing and you remove covering. We know what happened in the garden. Take away the man, let the woman alone to talk to the serpent, and you are going to have a disaster. We know this evening that this is true. We understand the breakdown of the institution of marriage, and we see the horrible price that's being paid. How many young men that I deal with and old men who are fatherless, there was no male in their life, there was no man in their life, and they lost their way, and it has become the scourge of our society. Nehemiah 4, verse 14, a word spoken to men, fight for your brethren your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. A son and a daughter and a wife needs a man. They must have a man. They must have somebody fighting for them. They provide protection. And then we have Isaiah 4, verse 1. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food. And wear our own clothing, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. That scripture you will not find on the walls in Planned Parenthood. You're not going to find that in the feminist world, but the scripture says that there was a period of time where women 
took men for granted. They viewed them as an unnecessary nuisance uh, until the reality uh, of, uh, of the dangers and the threats that came and women came into a panic uh, and they said, we must have a man, uh, we must have covering uh, and you take that away, you remove man from the picture, uh, there's never going to be any blessing. You know what, if that's true, gentlemen, then that is why men are a target and you are a target tonight. Just because you are a man, you are a target. You don't have to do anything but be born. Just ask uh, Pharaoh. The Bible says that every Hebrew male baby, they were ordered to drown the moment they were born. The very fact of your maleness makes you a threat to the devil. You can be the most unspiritual guy here tonight. You can be totally carnal. Somebody who hasn't prayed in weeks. You came along here because somebody said they'll take you to Chico's Tacos afterwards. I want to tell you that the fact that you are a man makes you a target tonight. And we have to maybe clarify that. We still believe in men and women here at the door in El Paso, Texas. A little quote says, at Harvard this year, students are getting the chance to indicate their preferred gender-neutral pronouns during registration according to news reports. Also this year, students applying to schools in the University of California system can choose between six gender identities in an optional question on the application. That was last year. I think we're up to like 52 different types of, of genders. Um, you're either a man or you're a woman or you're a man that acts like a woman. There's not a lot of choices here tonight. I want to tell you, your manhood is a target. Here are the three eyes that are the challenge for men. Number one is immaturity. Men don't want to grow up. Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Translated, grow up. It's time to grow up. You know, I came here to speak to you as men. This isn't a sermon. It's not a Sunday school it's a, men for, a class for men. You know what that means? It means get rid of your stupid video games and grow up. Okay, yeah, no, 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 don't, no, 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 no. You, you do that, they'll get offended. Okay, don't, don't cheer. Just, you know, stop that. I mean, just stop that. Okay, when, when you're a child, you do that. But it's amazing how many young men that are serving God and doing well come to me on their own and say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me, or I just want to let you know that when I got saved, I was a big-time gamer. And I got saved and instinctively knew uh, I can't keep doing this. There's an immaturity that is working. We're talking about the emotional immaturity that you can't correct a young man because they start crying or you don't love me, you hate me, you know, and they, and they get all upset and, uh, you know, you might consider moving out. You're 30 and, uh, you know, it's, it's time to move out. And so I, I'm not speaking to you, I'm speaking to society right now. We're talking about a generation of young men that don't want to grow up and be men. Get a job, pay your bills, uh, get out on your own, uh, live life, um, and apply yourself. Uh, because uh, today, uh, many, many young men are stunted. They don't have their, dri they're, they're, they're 20, they don't have their driver's license. 
And let me remind you again, you're, there's a target. There's something happening here. And that's why every father here needs to understand your job is to bring your boy to, to self-sufficiency. You can't carry him and coddle him. You're not helping him. His goal is to be a man. You want a good illustration? This isn't a sermon, but we got time. There's a, George Washington's wife, Martha. She was a widow. Her, she, had, she had two kids when they got married. They never had children, and she had a son named George. And this, this young man was a spoiled brat. George Washington, General Washington, the great leader of men, wasn't allowed to correct his own stepson because mama wouldn't let him. That never happens in El Paso, but uh, she wouldn't let him. Uh, and as a result, he became as weak and soft. He was a feat. And what happened was, uh, as he got a little bit older, he began to recognize who his stepfather was and began to admire him rather than hide from him. And so he began to use his relational influence to begin to be a part as the war ground to an end. He was in Yorktown when the, when the decisive uh, battle was fought. He was there. Uh, and, and while he was there, he now, as a, younger, uh, as a young man, now craved uh, the qualities of manhood that he had shirked when he was younger. And his mother would never let George teach him. And uh, while he was there and participated in that, he got sick and he died an early death. A tragic life. Grow up. Because at some point, you're going to wake up and realize uh, that you want to be a man. You don't want to be a kid anymore. Number two is immorality. Immorality. There's a, the, the Me Too movement is saying something. We know your weakness. We know your weakness. Did you, have you, I don't know, have you, have you paid attention at all to what's happening with this whole Trump-Russia collusion, uh, uh, delusion, and uh, this guy, George Papadopoulos, uh, I don't know much about him, but I do know this, that uh, they, he went to England, and while he was there, our own government sent a, a female spy, young woman, to try to seduce him. This, it, it, what, what I'm saying is nothing's changed. The Philistines could not defeat Samson, and they sat down, and they thought about it, and they hired Delilah. Balaam uh, tried to curse Israel, uh, and every time he opened his mouth, God uh, took over and he spoke a blessing. Uh, and he sat down and thought about it, uh, and he said, you know what, uh, he told the king, uh, just let your young women uh, come over uh, and prance around their young men, uh, and then invite them to their church. Uh, and next thing you know, everybody's fornicating. And what he could not speak uh, fell on them, uh, because everybody knows where a man's weak. And so you have young men who are throwing themselves into immorality. Nine years old is the age, they say, that boys start looking at pornography now. Nine years old. They get trapped in this. They can't even walk around with one of these anymore. They're tormented in their mind. We are, we are being told over and over again that if you're a real man, then you're going you're to fornicate with women. You're going to prove yourself. Or, or if it's not that, you're introduced to homosexuality and you begin to embrace uh, and have your lust triggered in a wholly different direction. And, and, and you see a whole generation of young men 
I'm sure you've heard Pastor Stevens and others preach that it wasn't long ago and if you wanted to be a pervert, you had to drive, uh, you know, 20 miles out of town and park uh, somewhere uh, and go walk into some little trailer and sit next to Pee Wee Herman. But nowadays, uh, that, that, you know, we read that LeBron James takes uh, the team over to uh, the local strip joint to, to develop a relationship. It's seen but went some, man. And people give themselves, and men, and, and they just give themselves to this stuff and don't realize that men are a target. Because as a men go, so goes a nation. The third one's insecurity. You know, insecurity in a man, insecurity in a woman are two different things. If you want an interesting study, study the word modesty. It's only used twice in the whole Bible and in and, 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 when it's relating to men, it has to do with being a braggart. You know, don't be modest, don't brag. But to a woman, it has to do with dressing and how they dress. Because it's the insight into human nature and how men and women are. And so I'm not here to talk to women. I'm here to talk to men. Insecurity in a man manifests in having to overcompensate and show that you're a man. One of the indictments of manhood in our society is today, we view manhood now by symbols. I have to go on record, I'm not a big UFC guy, and I think the whole UFC and all that radical aggression is symbolic of something that's happening to men today. I got to stop and just say, I, somebody showed me a little clip today of Andy Reese Jr. knocking out that guy the other day. And that, that big Mexican, I said, man, I've seen that guy down on the south side of San Antonio a hundred times. Said, I didn't, anyway, I decided to throw that in. I, it, I, I made, it made my day. I don't know why. Amen. Anyway, my point, though, is that you see this, the tattooed, tough guy, hot head, skinhead, tough guy, covered in tattoos, who's ready to fight at the drop of a hat. Then he jumps in its monster truck. And he has his, all these collections of weapons. Now, let me say, I'm not saying that if you have a truck and a gun, you're, you're not a man. I'm saying having a truck and a gun don't make you a man. We men live by symbols. Back when I was a kid, it was the Mercedes-Benz and the emblem. And, and you know, that was this, you know, and, and people would see that and say, this guy is insecure trying to prove something. And there's something that today many young men battle with insecurity and so what they do is they overcompensate and I began to, I'll be honest with you, I began to get triggered because I was watching all these young men in my church collect all these guns. You know, we have a big gun show every month next to our building and one of the biggest in Texas and, and these guys are buying ARs and they're buying, and I'm like, you know, these kids were not, didn't grow up hunters or anything like that. They're just city kids. But uh, I began to realize, and I, I began to sit down and say, what are you doing? Why you, what, what is this? I mean, is there, is so, is there a, a, a civil war I haven't heard about? And, uh, and what it was, was somehow they're wrestling with their own insecurity, and having a weapon in their hand made them feel like a man. Let me say it to you again. As men go, so go the nation. Let me talk to you then, secondly, about men like a flock. 
Because the scripture says God wasn't just going to give them men, but a certain kind of man. You know, nine times in the Bible you'll find the words choice men. Choice men. In other words, not just a man, but a man that has been selected. Or that God is not just looking for a man, but he's looking for a certain kind of man. They were choice men. We know that Gideon's army is reduced from 32,000 to 300. And that issue before us is not that we are men, but that we will be the men God intended us to be. Verse 37, I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. You over again, four times in those two verses, you find that word flock. Now, I know that when we get together, we, don't cons- we like to think of ourselves as a flock. We're like, we're gangsters. You know, we're, we're bad boys, you know what I mean? Uh, bikers, you know, in Australia, they call them bikies. That doesn't sound too intimidating to me. And yet, in our scripture, God says there's nothing more powerful than when men are like a flock. What does that mean? I'm going to give you three reasons I think this is important to us. Number one, I believe, first of all, it means that we are men who have a shepherd. Because, of course, a flock has a shepherd. That you and I are willing to place ourselves under the guidance and the protection and, yes, the discipline of a man. Societies are blessed when they have men who are under submission. Let me say that to you again. Societies are blessed when they have men who are under submission. That is what causes a nation to flourish. We know that the America, during the Great Depression, they suffered a, 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 a great uh, 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 poverty, and World War II broke out, uh, and literally millions of American men were introduced to military discipline and order and structure. World War II, uh, they won, and then they returned back in 1945, and from 1945 till 1965, they built the, the greatest nation in the world. Those weren't just any men. Those were men who had been to war. Men who began to understand and experience structure and order were able to, to go to jobs, submit to authority, begin to apply themselves, work all the, all the qualities that come with structure. And they immediately brought up blessing and enlargement to, that had been, was unprecedented to, to mankind. The Bible tells us when the children of Israel went into the promised land, they marched into the promised land. They didn't just run across the river. They marched in order, in structure. A statement is being made. Inheritance comes to those who are in order. When men are under a shepherd, 90% of all violent crimes committed in our country are done by single men who are only 13% of the population. 
When men don't have any order or structure, they become a menace to society. They become a problem. But when men are willing to place themselves under authority, my testimony tonight is that, one, I had a very, very good father. I have to say that I was very blessed. My parents were very good, very responsible. Uh, they took their responsibilities. And then when I got saved, uh, I submitted myself to a very faithful and godly pastor who's still my pastor 40 years later. And the blessing and the favor that came from being under a shepherd. And if men are going to be in a flock, then that means, you know what, you have a pastor. If I were to ask you tonight who your pastor is, do you know who your pastor is? And does that term mean something to you? You know, you got a lot of people that they say, oh, you know, I've got a pastor, but, but, it, but, but it doesn't mean anything to them. I like to tell the story about one time I was at the mall in San Antonio many years ago, and I happened to run into somebody that comes to our church occasionally. I mean, every few months, and when they saw me, they were with some family members, and they're, Pastor Ruby, Pastor Ruby, and they came over, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and they said, uh, I want to introduce you to my pastor, and they introduced me, and I, I wanted so bad to say, you liar. I am not your pastor. They don't listen to a word I say. They never come to church. The real issue is, are you submitted tonight? Because to be part of a flock, the shepherd has to mean something. And in real terms, uh, you know, some sheep doesn't just come along, bah, bah. You know, I don't have to listen to you, bah. And uh, <laughs> you know what else is interesting here? I move along here, and that is that we are also men who are to be worshipers. The Bible says that the Picture here is them at the time of the feast days. These were times of special festivals, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, and it required the presence of all the males. In the Bible, if you were male, you had to go. It was compulsory. Your wife didn't have to go, your children, but the man would go with the idea that he would receive from God and then he would return to his home and he would then bless his family. And the idea here is that they were gathered, and they were gathered at time of worship. Let's talk tonight. Because here's the truth. Many men are uncomfortable with worship. There are many men that are uncomfortable. You know what the problem is, gentlemen? Is that people still think that worship is a feminine trait. Something women do. We're men. And so we don't get all off into worship. That's for women. You see that. I've been a pastor a long time. You watch boys. Watch little boys. Boys come to church. They come into children's church. They're involved. They're excited. Watch them when they turn 11, 12 years old. You'll see the disaffected, cool 12-year-old boy. A lot of times his father doesn't come to church. And he's there. And then all the other boys that were all into it, real smart, next thing you know, they notice Joe Cool. And now all of a sudden, they become very self-conscious. And they begin to feel like, you know what, and they begin to look at uh, their peers and realize the girls, it's okay for the girls to go forward. And at that age, boys get lost in church between the age of 11 and 13 years old. 
And a lot of that has to do with this idea that worship is feminine. And so you'll see men. They're still uncomfortable to worship. It's amazing. One of the things I do a lot of times in marriage counseling is I'll ask, uh, do you pray for your wife? You lay hands on her to pray? Do you, do you, do you know, and, and, you, and you realize how many guys don't do it. They're still awkward, still uncomfortable. They, they'll come and they'll see a pastor pray and they'll see that. But when it comes to themselves handling spiritual things, they're not worshipers. You know, the Apostle Paul said, I wish that men would pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. He says, There's, you are no more an epitome of man than when you can stand in a public place, lift your hands, and worship God. You demonstrate God's intent for man there more than anything else you do, and yet in many men, Paul writes this for a reason. They have a hard time doing that. They'll kind of semi, you know, sing a little bit, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know and, and, but, but they, they're, they're afraid to really enter in. I remember when I was a young convert, um, you know, we would have, uh, this is back in 79 and 80, and we'd have these, these guys come and preach for us, you know. And so I'm, I'm saved. I'm just a teenager, but I, I, mean, I mean, I'm into worship. I like to worship. I don't dance or, you know, but I mean, I, I have no problem lifting my hands, singing. I've only been saved a few months now. I'm a disciple. Uh, back in those days in the Tucson church, that we had grown so fast that I used to sit on the floor. I never sat in a chair. I'd sit on the floor probably the first nine months I was saved, and and. And, uh, and I'd be all into it. And I remember one time we had this, uh, I don't know what event it was, but the, during the worship service, you know, we're doing song service. And, you know, and back then, if you were an old timer, you know, we used to use four square hymnals. You know, I mean, but I mean, I'm worshiping. And, and, and the guy that's going to preach the whole worship, he's just like this. And then it's time to stand. And I remember watching that. And you know how I process that? Hmm. Maybe I need to chill. Maybe you get to a point, you reach a level where you get past this stuff. This is just for the younger converts, you know, the excited guy, the guy that did too much acid. And, uh, you know, this, this kind of thing, you know, is for them and for the women. But this guy, obviously, you know, he's... Shoot, he's probably 32 years old. He's, old, he's been around a while. He's seen a few things, uh, and he's, he's post-worship. Well, that guy's no longer in the ministry, by the way. I believe as a pastor, I'm supposed to be the chief worshiper. And there's this thing in men that they don't want to do that. And I want to tell you, I, I think, you know, a lot of times there's the... There's a, there, there's a reason why they have so many other issues in their life. He said, I see you like a flock on the feast days. Thirdly, men of sacrifice. Like a flock offered its holy sacrifices. You know, the truth was on those feast days, sheep weren't there to sing. <laughs> they weren't there to play the drums and the guitar. 
Some of you don't know what I'm talking about right there, you know. They were the ones that were going to be prepared for the sacrifice. And God said, I am looking for men who are willing to sacrifice. I am looking for men that were willing to offer themselves up to God's purpose. Psalms 100, verse 4, we sing this song. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. I will enter in his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter in his courts with praise. And in our mind, we've, we've walked into the church and we're singing, but it's, it's sheep that are singing, but they're not going in there just to sing and praise. They're going in there to be sacrificed. And the question is, can he, still, can he still find men who will sacrifice? A question that we always have to ask ourselves. It doesn't matter how far down the road we are. Where is the sacrifice in my life? If I am part of the flock of God, then there has got to be an arena of sacrifice. Somewhere in my life, I have to order my life that it's going to cause me to sacrifice, to, to come to grips with my flesh, come to grips with my desires versus his desires. Whether that's motivating you to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to put myself on an outreach. I, I'm going to tell you what we battle with over there in San Antonio. Maybe it's not an issue in El Paso. And I'm not being, uh, you know, uh, 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 smart by saying that. I mean it. You know what I'm dealing with right now? I'm dealing with 50-year-olds who don't want to be committed but still want to have all the positions. They qualified in sacrifice, and now years later, they don't want to, they, they want to, Take their step back. They don't want to be dedicated to every church service. They don't want to be, you know, involved in everything. But, 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 they don't, but, but if you say to them, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to have you step down so I can put someone in there. Who's willing, and it's, you know, like, how dare you? I built this church. No sacrifice. Whether it's saying, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice time and I'm going to put myself in this ministry arena. Or it's going to be perhaps money. I'm going to give uh, 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 way beyond my tithe or to support world evangelism. Or uh, it's involved in prayer and fasting and I'm going to separate days of fasting nobody knows about. But I'm going to uh, target situations or perhaps one of our uh, missionaries or, or perhaps just some couple in church, some, some new convert that they don't even know that I'm doing it, but I'm separating a time of prayer and I'm just going to, and, I, and God, oh God knows, but more than that, God, I have to have sacrifice in my life. And if I don't have sacrifice in my life, how can I be that? Finished a book recently on Teddy Roosevelt. I tell you what, I admire Teddy. Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, the guy died at 60, and he did so much in, in, in 60 years. It's unbelievable. The age of 59, when World War I broke out, 
Teddy Roosevelt pulled every political string he could to be given uh, uh, an army until he could go to France and fight. He was 59, he's blind in one eye because when he was president for recreation, he used to uh, like to uh, uh, spar with professional boxers and somebody hit him so hard, they blinded him in one eye. He's 59 now. The guy had already nearly died on the Amazon River and, uh, and uh, when uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson wouldn't, wouldn't uh, uh, give him a commission and allow him to do that, he reached past him, contacted his friends in France. Uh, they were going to, going to let him raise up his own army and go to France apart from the United States. 59 years old and that brother still trying to get onto the battle line. I would just ask you tonight, just in your own heart, where's your sacrifice? What would you say? Where would it be? You know, the truth was Jerusalem collapsed because they couldn't find any men willing to sacrifice anymore. Let me close then and talk to you about finding men, and we'll finish up here tonight. Because where are these men going to come from? You know, the mythology, of course, is that, you know, out there somewhere is this great tribe of warriors. Somewhere they're going to find, you know, in some hidden plateau in Papua New Guinea, you know, these great men. Every time America has been called to war, you know what they say? Ah, American men are weak. That's what they say. They said, man, World War II, men, American, American men are weak. The Soviet Union... If they ever were, fought, uh, were going to fight a war, they absolutely believe. I've been to Russia. I have spoken to them. I've, and, and, and the attitude among the Russians is they absolutely knew they did not have the technological uh, warfare America had. But they really did believe back in the Cold War that if push came to serve, American men are weak. There's this idea that men are weak. This is what the Me Too people would have us believe. They find that every time when men were called to war, men rose up. And we have a picture in our text. Remember, the chapter breaks are not in the text. They were added by men later. This revelation of men like a flock, and right then, Ezekiel is taken to a valley of dry bones. And as he looks at a valley of dry bones, he begins to prophesy. And the men who are going to fill the cities are men who have experienced defeat, men who have been conquered, that God says, I'm going to cause them to rise again. The Bible says in verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. You know what that tells me tonight? That tells me this evening that there are a lot of men with incredible potential who are buried by sin and failure and defeat. That the truth is this evening that these men that God is wanting to raise up are men that need redemption. They need God to restore and help them and minister in their lives. And I can tell you in all the years of pastoring, I, I, this is so clear to me as I see men and I think, man, that brother could be so powerful. 
I see young men and, I, and, and this guy, you know, he has no idea what, what God could do in his life. He doesn't see the potential. I see men that one time were used powerfully by God who feel in their heart, I'm sidelined, Pastor Ruby. I, yeah, you drive by a junkyard. That's how I feel like that old Toyota in that. I feel like, you know what, uh, I've seen my better days, but I'm done. I've blown it too many times, too many failures, too many efforts uh, that didn't go anywhere. And, and, and it's like, it's like that, that uh, silver coin from that woman who lost it. It's buried in the dirt. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I know it's there somewhere, but I don't know where it is. The truth is, the men that God were going to use were going to be men that had failed and fallen and been defeated. He says, you know what I need? I need a leader. I need a leader. I need a leader that will stand up like Ezekiel and begin to speak a prophetic word and cause people who thought they were dead to come back to life and realize God's not done with me. I, it's not over for me. I'm not past. Men need a captain. The Bible says that uh, everyone who was in debt, distressed, discontent came to David and he became a captain over them. They became David's mighty men. There was a time when David was so popular among women. The Bible says the women sang, Saul is killed as thousands and David is ten thousands. But being popular among women does jack for a man when it comes to destiny. Okay, it's like being Donny Osmond. And uh, there's, there's no future. But all it took was for 600 men to get behind David. And a kingdom was established. What men need is a leader. That's what discipleship is tonight. I don't know if you figured this out yet, but you're here not just to come and attend a few services and go have a nice lunch somewhere, but, but every man here, God has a destiny for your life. There's an opportunity for you to say, I'm going to get involved in what God is doing, and I can see my life raised from the ashes. Can you say amen? And God can help me. He can do it again. He can minister. I don't know everybody here. You might have been in the ministry. You might have come back for redirection. You might have been in ministry and had to step down or, or retire. I, I don't know, but I'm telling you tonight that the heart of God is to find men who think they're buried and say, you're not dead yet. Uh, I have a plan and I have a purpose for your life. Now, I want to tell you something. This is a, more powerful than we understand. And I'm going to leave you with this. I, I picked this up in, in uh, Billy Graham's biography. It's an outstanding autobiography, just as I am. He tells the story about going to minister in Korea. And while he was there, he was traveling with one of the generals that was in Korea, General, his name was General Jenkins. General Jenkins was a bad dude. He tells one story where they were in a helicopter. It might have been Vietnam. They were in a helicopter. And as they were flying, they came across and they saw a wild pig running below them. And the general ordered the helicopter to circle the pig, and he took out his rifle, and he shot the pig. 
from the helicopter. And then he told Billy Graham, well, we're going to have him for dinner tonight. He's a tough guy, very powerful, very much beloved by his men. And so after that, they went to a hospital to visit wounded soldiers. And they came across a young man that was so mangled that he lay face down on a canvas and still contraption. Billy Graham says, a doctor whispered to me. He said, I doubt he'll ever walk again. This young man is lying upside down. And the young man said, he knew Billy Graham was there. He said, Mr. Graham, can I see your face? Asked the young man. Billy Graham said, we've all been praying for you and looking forward to your coming. Oh, the young man said to Billy Graham as he's lying upside down, we've all been praying for you and looking forward to your coming. I won't be able to be at the service. So Billy Graham said, I lay on the floor beneath him and looked up into his hollow eyes, still stunned with his fate. I prayed for him. Listen to this. Then the young man said, sir, said the young man to General Jenkins, who was escorting me, I fought for you, but I've never seen you. Could I see your face? The general got down on all fours, slid under that bed as best he could, and talked with the young man. And I saw a tear fall from the soldier onto the general's cheek. I think deep down, every man wants to have a leader. Every man knows that. You know what? I can't get there on my own. But God, if you would give me a leader, then I can become what you've called me to become. Let's bow our heads. Before I do anything else, if you're here tonight and you're not saved, you're not right with God, you need forgiveness. Jesus Christ's blood was shed for you. He died in your place. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I'm not right with God. Tonight I feel like I'm covered in sin. I feel like I'm full of shame and guilt on the inside. I need God to forgive me. I need Jesus Christ to change my life. And I want to repent. Before I do anything else, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. This is your moment. Raise your hand up, and by raising your hand, you're saying, I want to get my heart right with God. Amen. Thank you, these hands. Who else tonight? Lift up your hand. Amen. Lift it up. I want you to lift your hand. I want you just to get out of your seat right now. Come on. Just get out of your seat and come down here and find a place to pray. And let's make sure that each one of these men have somebody to pray with them. Just pray with them, a sinner's prayer right here. Pray with this young man right here. God's going to help them. Amen. Anybody else before I move on? Come on. Come on, brother. Just step out. You have your hand lifted. Come on. God wants to help you. The blood of Jesus Christ wants to cleanse you. Thank God for you. Anybody else? All right. My challenge tonight is to be not just a man, but be a man like a flock. The world is cynical about you. It says you're toxic. It says you're nothing but a lust bag. It says that you're a, you're a child. That's what, that's, that's what they're trying to label us. That's what they're trying to make us out to be. God says, as a nation goes, only by its men. We need men. This nation needs men. Your church needs men. Your wife, your children need men. And my challenge tonight is to say, God, I want to be a choice man. I want to be a man like a flock. I'll have a pastor. 
I'll be a worshiper. I'll be a man of sacrifice. And you know what? I'm getting under a leader. I want my life to count. Some of you have failed. You have, been, you have experienced things. And you feel kind of like Ezekiel's army buried underground. But God's not through with you. I want to tell you tonight, God's not through with you. May the Spirit of God stir your heart tonight. Let's stand. I'm going to open these altars tonight.